In this section, we will see how Paul concludes his message about the believer's task of mastering the old fleshly nature. In the previous sections, he wrote about several wrong ways to master the flesh, and he also focused on the fleshly attitudes and behaviors that believers are to put off or put away from themselves. There were both sensual sins and relational sins that we are to consider ourselves as being dead to. Since believers have been raised up with Christ, we now have the ability to say no to old attitudes and behaviors, and we can seek to use the things above as our new pattern for living. Growing in Christ-likeness is possible now because we are in Christ and have the indwelling Holy Spirit who gives us the desire and power to please Him. The principle of replacement means that when we put off the old ways, we must then put on the new ways which please God. In the last session, we saw many examples of things that a believer must put off, So, to complete the replacement, in this section, Paul will explain what a believer must put on. On the heels of Paul's list of relational sins, today's passage mentions several social, racial, and class distinctions which were an integral part of the society of Paul's day. In Colossians 3, verse 11, he says, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Now, social norms required people to behave differently toward others based on the kinds of distinctions that are mentioned in this verse. But here Paul tells us that these distinctions should not exist in the body of Christ. We can consider these distinctions and prejudices to be part of the social sins that Paul had just condemned. The first part of this verse can be translated literally as, Where not exists Greek and Jew. Obviously, that sounds pretty rough in English, but several Bible versions follow this closely. Some say, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, while others say, here there is no Greek or Jew. Any word-for-word translation of the Bible will probably use one of these renderings, because to say more than that would be to go beyond translation into the area of interpretation. The question is, when Paul says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, where is where? (laughs) What is the area or sphere that's being referred to? The Christian Standard Bible says, in Christ there is not Greek and Jew. It has chosen to identify Christ as the sphere in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. This makes sense because throughout this letter, believers are said to be in Christ. And the end of this verse states that Christ is all and in all. The New American Standard Bible and the Legacy Standard Bible both translate the verse by connecting it to the idea of renewal in the previous verse. 
Colossians 3 verses 9 and 10 say, You laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed. So we might paraphrase this by saying, As believers are being renewed and continue to grow in spiritual maturity, they understand that these social, racial, and class distinctions are meaningless within the body of Christ, the church. This way of understanding the verse also makes sense, but it seems important to point out that these Bible versions have gone beyond a strict word-for-word translation and have ventured into the realm of interpretation. Throughout the ages, various people groups have formed their identities around their commonalities. This has led to an us-versus-them mentality in different parts of societies across the globe and throughout history. The interesting thing that began to happen in Paul's day, though, was that the church cut across all of these distinctions. People from radically different groups began to be included in the body of Christ. The church started to erase all of the tenaciously held social norms and class distinctions. Within the church, there were believers who had been rescued out of cultured Greek society, as well as former members of Judaism. A strict Jewish perspective made the distinction between the circumcised and the uncircumcised, or Jews versus Gentiles. The cultured Greeks made the distinction between themselves and the barbarians, those who were not Greek speakers and whose speech sounded like gibberish to them. There were even some believers who were Scythians, and they were considered to be the worst of the barbarians. Of course, many slaves became believers right alongside the free men from their society. So the church began to break down cultural norms in the area of social and class distinctions. The important truth which Paul states at the end of this verse is that Christ is all and in all. There is an old saying that the ground is level at the foot of the cross which means that there are no distinctions between Christians. All believers are sinners saved by grace. As one commentator said, Christ absorbs in himself all distinctions, being to all alike everything that they need for justification, sanctification, and glorification. The unity of the divine life shared in by all believers counterbalances all differences even as great as that between the polished Greek and the crude Scythian. Christianity imparts to all the only source of sound social and moral life. Now we've seen that Paul has shared wonderful truths about the greatness of Christ throughout this letter. For example, he told us that Christ is fully God, that he is our Redeemer, our Creator, and that in him all things hold together. Paul was given new revelation for the church age, which included Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because of the indwelling Christ, we partake of his fullness or completeness. And just a few verses ago, Paul shared that Christ is our life. No wonder he declares here that Christ is all and in all. As a result of all that we have in Christ... 
Paul will begin to describe what believers are to put on as we seek to be more Christ-like. In Colossians 3, verse 12, Paul says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We know from the last section that Paul listed many negative examples of both sensual and relational sins which believers were to put aside, as if they are removing dirty clothing. In order to complete the picture, starting here in this verse, Paul will begin to explain the positive and valuable things that believers should put on, as if they are replacing old dirty clothing with new fresh garments. As we look at the first part of this verse, a literal translation would be, Clothe yourselves, therefore, as chosen ones of God, holy and beloved. The Greek word order has the verb first in this sentence for emphasis. To put on is the word enduo, which literally means to go under, be plunged into, or to sink into something. It was commonly used for the act of putting on clothing. And it's the same word that Paul used previously in verse 10, where he said, put on the new self. The verb form is an imperative or command. The Holy Spirit can empower us if we cooperate with him, but we are responsible to do what is commanded. Paul begins by saying, therefore, or in view of what has just been said. So we could paraphrase this as, therefore, since Christ is all and in all, Believers are to clothe themselves with all of these qualities. It is because of the unity that such diverse believers have in Christ that they're able to behave graciously toward each other. Very different types of people have all been made part of the family of God. And contrary to what societal norms might dictate, These diverse peoples are to behave toward one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. One commentator expressed it this way, Because Christ is all and in all, therefore, clothe yourselves with all the brotherly graces corresponding to the great unity into which all Christians are brought by their common possession of Christ. The whole field of Christian morality is not covered here, but only some examples that concern the social duties which result from that unity. Now, before Paul launches into a list of positive qualities, he pauses to give three important descriptions of these believers, which should motivate them even more toward gracious behavior because of their unity in Christ. In the phrase, those who have been chosen of God, the word chosen is the Greek word eklektos, which literally means selected out of. This thought is similar to what Paul said previously in Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14. He rescued us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word eklektas here emphasizes the fact that God purposely selected each of these very diverse individuals to be members of his body, the church. 
If God himself selected each of them, then who are we to question his choice or to treat others disrespectfully based on societal distinctions? Next, Paul says these believers are holy, which is the Greek word hagias. This is the same word which was translated saints four times in chapter 1. As it did there, here it also means consecrated or set apart for God. If God himself consecrated these believers for his own purposes, then who are we to find fault with his decision? Finally, Paul says these believers are beloved, which is the word agapao. This is the same word translated love or beloved, which Paul has been using throughout this letter. As we learned in an earlier session, this type of love is unconditional, and it could be described as unmerited, unselfish, and self-sacrificing. It's the highest form of love, and it's the kind of love which God himself expresses toward those he's chosen and consecrated. Again, if God himself has set his love upon these diverse individuals, then who are we to withhold our love from them? Believers have a unity in Christ which should lead the members of his body to follow his example in viewing different believers as God's own chosen, consecrated, and beloved people. One commentator has said, It is most significant to note that every one of the graces listed here has to do with personal relationships between people. There is no mention of virtues like efficiency or cleverness, not even of diligence or industry. Not that these things are unimportant. But the great basic Christian virtues are those which govern human relationships. So Paul now begins to list some of the positive attitudes and behaviors that believers must put on in their relationships with others. As we look over this list, it becomes apparent that these are all qualities which Jesus himself exemplified during his earthly life. So believers are literally to become more and more Christ-like by following the example of his behavior. Paul says, put on a heart of compassion. The word compassion is oikthirmas. It describes the sympathetic compassion that one shows for the sufferings of others. This is sometimes translated mercies and is listed in 2 Corinthians 1.3 as a character trait of God the Father. Just as God's heart is stirred with pity, our hearts should also respond to the suffering of others, especially to fellow members of the body of Christ. He then mentions kindness, which is the Greek word kreistates, which, as one lexicon says, is the grace that pervades a person's nature and mellows all that which would be harsh and severe. It was used to describe wine that has mellowed with age. This is the same quality that God demonstrates to us according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, And Paul listed it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, as part of the fruit of the Spirit, which should be evident in the lives of all believers. Next, Paul lists humility, which is the Greek word tapenophrosune. It means lowliness of mind and to have an accurate estimate of one's own significance. 
Now, this is the same word that Paul had used in a negative context in Colossians 2, verses 18 and 23, where he described the false humility of those who were advocating visions and the worship of angels. Here in this verse, Paul has the positive connotation in view. Genuine humility is a character quality which God values highly, and the epistles of both Paul and Peter listed among the virtues that believers need to cultivate. Next, Paul lists gentleness. This is the Greek word proutes. It's often translated as meekness, and it carries the idea of power under God's control. One lexicon said it is an attitude of spirit which accepts God's dealing with us as good and does not dispute or resist. It is a condition of mind and heart which demonstrates gentleness not in weakness but in power, which is a balance born of strength of character. So gentleness is a character quality of Jesus himself, as we see in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. And Paul did include this word in Galatians 5, verse 23, as part of the fruit of the Spirit, which all believers should display. Next, Paul mentions patience, macrothumia, which is a word that we've seen before in Colossians 1, verse 11. It literally means long-tempered, and it can be translated as long-suffering or forbearance toward people. This word is also included in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 as part of the fruit of the Spirit. Both Paul and Peter made it clear that this is an important character trait of Jesus himself, which we're to imitate. Now Paul goes on to add to this list in verse 13, where he says, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Bearing with one another is the Greek word anekomai, and it literally means to hold oneself up or back. And here in this context, it carries the idea of maintaining your own good disposition or behavior in the midst of dealing with something or someone who is difficult. It can be translated to sustain oneself while having patience with the weaknesses of others. Jesus demonstrated this quality many times. Once, when his disciples could not cast out a demon from a child, Jesus said, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? And that's the same word. Luke chapter 9 verse 41. Paul also implored believers to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, and he listed several qualities, some of which we see here. He said, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, and then he said, showing tolerance for one another in love. And that's the same word we have here, to bear with one another. So depending on the situation, this could mean enduring persecution, putting up with difficult people, showing tolerance for others, and patiently bearing the weaknesses of others. Now, when Paul says forgiving each other, he used the Greek word charizomai. This word usually means giving, especially giving a gift that is unattainable, unrequested, or even undeserved. Now, when it's translated as forgive, 
it means that the one to whom a debt is owed will give the cancellation of the debt as a gift of grace or unmerited favor. The more common word for forgiving, afiami, has the broader meaning of sending away, but that one is not used here. In this verse, Paul seems to be emphasizing the gracious aspect of behavior that believers are to demonstrate toward one another. The goal should be to have a generous and gracious spirit among the believers. Paul then says, whoever has a complaint against anyone, and he uses the Greek word momphe, which means a fault or something to place blame upon. When fault-finding and accusations are raised between believers, gracious generosity ought to be the spirit of the response by both parties. In such situations, we are to put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech, and we are to put on kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. So how we respond during conflicts with others is a revealing measurement of how well we're putting into practice this section of Colossians. At the end of this verse, Paul provides a powerful reason why believers are to forgive each other. He says, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. The Lord Jesus Christ graciously canceled your immense debt of sin. So you should follow his example by forgiving the relatively minuscule faults or debts that you feel are owed by a fellow believer. All of these complaints are quite minor in comparison to the life and death matters that you've been forgiven of by Jesus. Now, this sounds very much like the story Jesus told about the king who was settling accounts with those who owed him money in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. And I think it'd be worth telling that story here. It says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. This would be the equivalent of several million dollars today. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. That's about one six hundred thousandth of what was originally owed by that man. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. 
Then summoning him, his lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So believers are not to follow the example of the unforgiving servant by quibbling with fellow believers over small matters, because the Lord has canceled their own debt, which was so great they could never repay it. The fact that Paul included toleration and forgiveness in this list of attitudes and behaviors that believers are to put on means that there will, at times, be difficulties between believers within the body of Christ. Even though there is a powerful unity in Christ, diversity still exists. There will always be differences between people, which will need to be tolerated, and there may be difficulties with others which will need to be forgiven. Believers are all trying to master their old fleshly nature, and some are having more success with that than others. Paul now adds the grand finale to his list by saying in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, Beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The word beyond translates the Greek preposition epi, which means upon or over. So we could view love as the outer garment that believers are to put on, which encompasses all of the other virtues that we should exemplify. When we think of love as the outer garment, we should understand how love functions in believers' relationships. In his earlier letter to the church at Corinth, Paul explained how the absence of this one quality can actually negate all of the others. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said that Christian speech, which is unaccompanied by love, becomes nothing more than an irritating noise. He said that even if a believer has the gift of prophecy or has all knowledge or all faith, it amounts to nothing without love. If a believer gives all of his possessions to others and goes so far as to be martyred for his commitment to Christ, but does not have love, then it's worthless. In 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7, Paul showed that love actually does encompass all of the other virtues. It literally binds them all together in a perfect unity. One commentator expressed it this way, It may be possible for all the dispositions already mentioned to exist in some fashion without love. There may be pity without love, the feeling with which one looks upon some poor outcast or on some stranger in sorrow, or even on an enemy in misery, may be compassionate and yet clearly separate from love. So it is with all the others. There may be kindness without any of the divine emotions, and there may even be forbearance reaching the point of forgiveness and yet leaving the heart untouched in its deepest recesses. But if these virtues were exercised in the absence of love, they would be fragmentary, shallow, and would have no guarantee of effectiveness. 
let love come into the heart and knit a man to the poor creature whom he'd only pitied before, or to the enemy whom he had at most been able with an effort to forgive, and it lifts these other emotions into a nobler level. He who pities may not love, but he who loves cannot help but pity, and that pity will flow with a deeper current and be of a purer quality than the shrunken stream which does not rise from that higher source of love. Now, this kind of love, God's love, is almost impossible to demonstrate apart from the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. We can think of the Holy Spirit as the one who provides the new articles of clothing and then helps us to put on the entire outfit and makes sure that it fits perfectly and functions exactly as intended. It's impossible to become more and more Christ-like without the constant help of the Holy Spirit within. One commentator has said, The articles of the Christian's attire are enumerated here, and we need to refer to this list often in order to be sure that none of them is missing from our spiritual wardrobe. We must not always focus on the negative of avoiding wrong, because the positive has a clear claim on us. And in each circumstance of trial or temptation, we must advance to meet it clothed in Christ. As the Lord acted, so must we. We must partake of the family likeness. Now at the end of this verse, Paul said, Love, which is the perfect bond of unity. A literal translation would be a bond of perfection. Bond is the Greek word sundasmas, which means something which binds or joins things together. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 19, this same word was translated ligaments in the context of how the body of Christ is held together by the so-called bands that join all the parts and keep them all in their right places. So here in this verse, love functions the same way. Without love, all of the qualities that were mentioned previously could become out of joint. This analogy helps us to understand why love is so important for the proper functioning of all these attitudes and behaviors. The word that is translated perfect is the Greek word teleates, which comes from the word teleos, it describes something that has reached its intended goal. It's complete or fully ripened and mature as a unified whole. So without love, all of the other qualities, as valuable as they are individually, would not really be complete. They would not be able to perfectly fulfill their intended goal or purpose. Love is essential to this entire process of growing in Christ-likeness. Now here Paul concludes his message about how believers should put off their old fleshly nature while putting on the character of Christ. As one commentator has said, So end the frequent references in this letter to putting off the old and putting on the new. The sum of them all is that we must first put on Christ by faith, and then by daily effort clothe our spirits in the graces of character which he gives us and by which we shall be like him. 
So Paul will now go on to add three general instructions that are going to help believers to live a life that is pleasing to God as they relate to others around them. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This sentence begins with the word and in the original Greek, so it can be viewed as a follow-up to Paul's command in the last verse. Here he commands them to let the peace of Christ rule. This kind of peace, the Greek word irene, includes the qualities of harmony, tranquility, and calm unity that have their source in Christ. Peace belongs to Christ, but believers can partake of his peace just as they can share in all of the other aspects of his fullness, according to Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. Here, Paul does not simply say that they are to have this peace. He says they must let peace rule in their lives. Rule, the Greek word brabuo, means to arbitrate, to govern, or to control. When you think of things that you might select to be in charge of something, do you think of peace? We might think of things like forcefulness or determination or a commanding presence or decisiveness or or even confidence, but we would probably never have chosen peace to be in charge. But God is telling us that peace is what he wants to rule over our attitudes and behaviors, especially within the body of Christ. The next part of this verse says, To which indeed you were called in one body. And this gives us the connection between the rule of peace and the fellowship of the members in the body of Christ, the church. Maintaining unity within the body is a major reason for allowing peace to rule among the members. One commentator has said, It is a call to those who have been knit together in one body. All this confirms the view that it's the attitude of the believer to others, which is still under consideration here in this verse. Peace is to act as an umpire. The verb here translated rule would describe the activity of the umpire in the Olympic Games, who decides the contest. Thus, in the inner conflict, which would inevitably accompany many of their attitudes, when love and bitterness contend for mastery, peace is to be the governing factor. Membership in the one body of Christ involves a call to maintain peace among the members. Each member, therefore, must himself be governed by this inner desire for peace, and this peace is Christ's gift. So finally, Paul adds his command for them to be thankful. The commands in this verse are in the present tense, which means that believers are to continually do these things and to make a habit of doing them. This last phrase could be translated, keep on becoming thankful. One commentator said, A spirit of thankfulness would tend to promote harmony and peace. An ungrateful people is usually an agitated, restless, and dissatisfied people. Nothing better tends to promote peace and order than gratitude to God for his mercies. In this verse, when Paul adds, And be thankful, it almost seems like an afterthought. 
until we look at all three of the final verses in this section. As we'll see shortly, Paul deliberately used thankfulness almost as an exclamation point at the end of each of these verses. The idea of thankfulness is one of the main themes that appears throughout this letter. We see it mentioned seven times, and so an attitude of thankfulness should permeate everything we do. In Colossians 3, verse 16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of Christ appears at the beginning of the original sentence for emphasis. Here Paul is referring to the sum of all the revelation that God gave, whether in the Old Testament or the words and work of Christ, or in the new revelation, the mysteries that are being given to the apostles and prophets in Paul's day for the church age. In our day today, we have all of God's revelation together in one place, that is, in our Bible. When Paul speaks of God's revelation in his epistles, he typically uses the phrase, the Word of God. Sometimes he adds other descriptive terms, such as a word of faith, the word of the cross, the word of reconciliation, the word of truth, the word of the Lord, or the word of life. Across all of his epistles, this is the only time Paul used the word of Christ. But it makes perfect sense in this letter, because he is emphasizing the greatness of Christ. Since the Lord Jesus Christ is God, here, instead of using his typical phrase, the word of God, Paul simply substitutes the equivalent word Christ for God. He is saying, let the word of Christ which is the word of God, richly dwell within you. Paul's command is in the present tense, so he wants us to continually be in the habit of letting the word of God make its home within us. To dwell within is the Greek word enoikeo, which has as its root the word oikos, which is house or dwelling place. So believers can think of themselves as the house where the word of God lives. Richly is a form of the same word Paul used in Colossians 1 verse 27, where he said that God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. He also used this word in Colossians chapter 2 verse 2, when he said that believers should attain all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding in a true knowledge of God's mystery. God's word is our only source of true knowledge, which is something that Paul mentions throughout this letter, just as he did in Colossians chapter 2 verse 3, where he said that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Here, Paul also adds, with all wisdom. One commentator has said, their experience of the word is not merely an individual one, for it is in the context of the fellowship of the church that they are to learn its truths. Thus, there must be a mutual sharing of the word of God. 
It is from the indwelling word that they will learn the wisdom of God, and that wisdom will then become the atmosphere in which they move as they seek to build one another up in knowledge. The worship of the church is here viewed from the standpoint of the edification of the believers. Now, in the last part of this verse, there are three participles which have the same force as commands, teaching, admonishing, and singing, and they are all in the present tense, which means that believers should make a habit of doing them. The word of Christ is emphasized in this verse because it should be the foundation for accomplishing all of these things. Teaching, didasco, involves giving instruction in the truths of the faith. Admonishing, nutheteo, literally means to put in mind, and it involves calling attention to something, exhorting or giving warnings. Singing, ado, means to express praise and devotion to God through song. And Paul listed three types of songs. The Psalms from the Old Testament, new hymns composed by Christians, and spiritual odes, literally, which may be chants, poems, or any words that are sung to express praise to God. But all singing must be grounded in the Word of God as its foundation. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul had described his own ministry, which was given to him by God for the benefit of the church. He said, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Paul had set the perfect example for the ministers who would come later. He was laser-focused on all the right things to benefit the body of Christ. One Bible commentator has this to say about the ministry of the Word of God in the Christian fellowship. There is a danger today, as there was in Paul's day, that local churches minimize the Word of God. Many saved people cannot honestly say that God's Word dwells in their hearts richly because they do not take the time to read, study, and memorize it. If we do not know the Bible and understand it, we cannot honestly sing it from our hearts. Now at the end of this verse, Paul encourages thankfulness again. All of these activities in the body of Christ should be done in a spirit of gracious thanksgiving. In Colossians 3, verse 17, Paul says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Here, Paul is telling us, whatever you say or do. So this command covers all aspects of our behavior. The important truth here is that all of it must be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. There really should be no compartmentalization in our lives between the secular and the sacred, between the spiritual and the worldly. Because believers are in Christ, everything is sacred and everything is spiritual. To live in the name of the Lord Jesus means that we are representing him in everything we do. We no longer live only for ourselves. 
but we live for him and publicly represent him and his standards. Our words and our deeds really must be chosen with a view to honoring him, and our goal should be to bring him glory. In order to do this, believers obviously need to grow in their knowledge of him and his ways. We must live in accordance with his pattern of life and in obedience to his authority. This is why it's so important that we keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, setting our minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. In the name of the Lord Jesus sets what may seem like an impossibly high standard of living. So, in order to please him, we must also rely on the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit. As Paul said in Colossians 1 verse 27, it's only because of Christ in you that you have the hope of glory. And if we are now living our lives in Christ, then it is through him that our prayers, praise, and thanksgiving will rise to God the Father. Living this way means that everything we do and say comes from a source that is hidden with Christ in God, that truly Christ is all and in all. So let us strive more and more to live our lives in the name and for the glory of the Lord Jesus. By way of application, from these two sessions on the right ways to master the flesh, since believers are responsible for managing our thought life, are there things that you allow to dominate your thoughts, but which you know are not focused on the positive and gracious life which God would want you to lead? When thoughts and ideas from your old nature rise to the surface, how are you dealing with them? How is it going for you as you consider the members of your body to be dead to the sensual sins? Are there any relational sins that you tend to fall into? Old habits die hard, so look over the lists again to see if God brings specific attitudes or behaviors to mind which you need to deal with. Do you have any preconceived notions or prejudices when it comes to social, racial, or class distinctions which Jesus says you're not to have? If so, what do you plan to do about them? After putting off any of the negative attitudes and behaviors, what do you need to put on? Look over the list of positive qualities to see which ones you should make your highest priority. Are you allowing the peace of Christ to rule your attitudes and actions when things become difficult? How would you rate yourself as a representative of the name of the Lord Jesus?